Sal's in on it. Mm -hmm. I'm in on it. Jones you know, in on it. Jones in on it. We're all in on it. We're all we're all complicit in in sexism is is what we are. term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. How are things in the circus? Damn serious. Welcome to They Coined It. <laughs> I did something this week I'd never done before. I watched an Elvis Presley movie. Oh, which one? Actually, I watched two Elvis Presley movies. Oh, which two? It was Viva Las Vegas and Jailhouse Rock. Jailhouse Rock is gorgeous. Well, they're both gorgeous. Actually, they both look great. And Elvis is fucking in his prime. And Anne Margaret, holy shit. Like, you know. Yeah. Nothing to avert your gaze. So I was not prepared for how shit-tastic Elvis Presley movies are. Really? Like, I knew they weren't good. And I knew they weren't especially interesting. <laughs> but I figured there was some sort of kitschy value or even like, I don't know, of the moment quality to them. They were horrendously bad. <laughs> and, and these aren't, this isn't like, you know, obscure, like name five Elvis movies you're going to say, Viva Las Vegas and Jail. Like these are sort yeah, of, I don't know if I can top of name top five. of mind. Right. But you know, but, but these are not obscure in any way. Sure. These are not the bad ones, is your point. Right. right. These, are not, these are the right. These are the creme de la creme Elvis and Hollywood movies. I saw Jailhouse Rock, I don't know how many uh, decades ago, and it was right when like the letterboxing of film, right, when films suddenly on TV could be long and skinny. This is a whole visual thing and you oh, can't, okay. yeah, yeah. nobody else can see me. And Jailhouse Rock was like the best example that they would use of the before and after. And the 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 actual scene of the number of Jailhouse Rock is, I mean, gorgeous. Oh, that's it is stunning. Oh, the, 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 the production of, oh yeah, that's incredible. Phenomenal. It still is and it holds up. I don't no remember question. anything else about the film. There's not five seconds of the movie otherwise that you could <laughs> yeah, do Yeah, I don't remember, with. I don't remember five other seconds of the movie. And and I'm like, just for the record, I'm really bad at this. It's part of why I'm good at this particular podcast because I'm like, oh, look at Mad Men, <laughs> right? Like I don't retain stuff like, um, unless no, no, I've seen no, no. it There's many times. To, this is not, no, this is not a personal uh, failing of yours. How would it compare to... Um, the Annette Funicello, the the Gidget stuff. Like, there's a whole comparable genre. Are they all shit-tastic, is my question. For this episode, where we are discussing Maiden Form, I actually have an interview with Lisa M. Lilly. She's the host of uh, Buffy and the Art of Story, which is a podcast I listen to every week. She's a fiction writer and she has uh, courses and stuff on storytelling. So to try to apply that to Mad Men, I thought would be a fun challenge. And it was. And she and I are going to get into um, specifically Peggy. And, cool. and we get into Buffy. If you're a Buffy fan, there's going to be some Buffy stuff. But if you're a Mad Men fan, there's plenty of Mad Men stuff. So awesome. uh, we'll get to that later. Fabulous. Well, Maiden Form is fun to talk about, which is what we're about to do. Maiden Form was written by Matthew Weiner, directed by Phil Abraham. Original air date was August 31st, 2008. And it takes place over May 29th to June 2nd, Memorial Day weekend, 1962. And this was a heavy, this was a heavy episode. It plays way heavier now, right, than it did. That wasn't just me, you know, looking at it years later. It, it, it feels far more weighty 
Maybe it's some of the cultural stuff that's transpired in the 12 or so years. Maybe it's just being older. I don't know. I think that might be a you thing. And I and I, I don't hmm. mean that in a I, I think that might be a men I was waking too up. shallow. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mean that as a shot at all. Like, I think. No, I, I know what you mean. I could see that. I think culturally it would play way deeper now with with the post me too post. I, I am putting in heavy, heavy air quotes because we've made some strides, but, you know. There's plenty, plenty of work to do. But for me, it was always, it's a heavy episode. You know, what's so interesting is that the, the entire series, it's in this period of time where the assumption is that racism, sexism, all of these, these cultural, these cultural problems that we have are, it, it's assumed that a piece set in the early 60s is going to take is going to reflect a casual attitude towards these things, right? And Mad Men does indeed take a casual attitude towards it. But because they're so slick and so um, skillful from Matthew on down to every writer that he hired at treating these things in the most realistic way for the time, the kinds of things that I picked up on within the episode were just, they were just, they were sort of like shocking but it did use a light touch and it, it created this atmosphere, at least within this episode. It's, it's obviously within the whole series, but I feel like this episode in particular was a spotlight on the casualness of real deeply entrenched um, attitudes towards sexism and women. The way Pete pitched creative to his father-in-law after getting fired for doing that with Bethlehem Steel, he does it again with Peggy. Why? Because it's fucking Peggy. Because she's a girl. a girl on his account. And I, I use the word girl very deliberately. Peggy's a woman. Pete's saying it's a girl. They put the girl on my account. I didn't want her anyway. Now, I was going to say he would never do that to anyone else, except he I'm already has. To your it. point, he already has. He wouldn't do it again. He learned his lesson. But also, there is the, the father-in-law. But that's just bullshit justification, right? 100%. She no choice. She knows she knows she has no choice. She, look, she's still lucky to have her job. She still knows that she has to play the like it's not she's not standing up for herself at every moment because she can't afford to do that. And that's that's again part of the time. That's that's what it was. And I'm, there, there's still vestige of that. So to me, it's like that casual type of power move by a Pete Campbell who's I don't know whatever 2 3 years older than Peggy, right? It's not like he's some big big shot is deeply, deeply disrespectful and sexist in its way, right? It's not a, it wasn't a sexist act per se, but it was- Oh no, it was a totally sexist act. And I think that's the difference between mm-hmm. your view and my view mm-hmm. is you're, you're hesitant to to commit that it's well, a I'm sexist saying it act from your, was, let, from let your me, vantage point. And I'm, let me, I'm let like, me no. rephrase. Let me rephrase. It wasn't harassment in the sense of like Freddie telling her to, go write some titillating copy, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a harassment type of act. <laughs> so I didn't, I'm saying it wasn't, it wasn't sexual in nature or in, in, in that way of being like inappropriate within the office in a sexual way. That That's what I meant. Yeah. But it was sexist. 
sexist and sexist. Right, that's and- the distinction. So yes, the difference between um, it's just different levels of egregiousness, I suppose. But it's not called out. It's not discussed. It's not called back to. It's not you know. But it's just sort of there. It's just that little scene in her office, you know. To jump into this piece of Peggy's storyline, this entire episode is her journey into powerlessness inside of her own account, and then coming out the other side of it in a in you know in such an unusual way, but unusual only because it's a world, it's a science fiction movie about a world where that ending of, of Peggy on that guy's lap is the solution, but it really is. Well, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of what, what I, what I call the, the brighter side of rampant entrenched sexism, you know, oh, look, oh, look at Peggy. She's able to turn the tables and be empowered by going to the sex club. But once she's there, she's not one of the boys. She has to sit on the client's lap. And what do you want for Christmas, little girl? And has to get fucking eyeball shamed by Pete, you know, inside of nine seconds. And she does that whole thing. And then she's, you know, suddenly very self-conscious. And you feel like it goes from like this empowerment sort of, hey, I turn the table on the boys club kind of thing, which is kind of how it's set up to be. But just as quickly, it turns right back around on Peggy and she's feeling like, oh, my God, what did I do? Peggy's choices were very limited in terms of what a power move is. Now, look at, I mean, look at Bobby Barrett. Bobby Barrett is a powerful woman playing that exact game and playing it well. If you look at how Peggy was dressed, probably a shade of blue that that I I didn't do. I didn't, I didn't think of this until just now is to sort of cross-check costuming. Oh, I'm sure there was a color. But I'm sure that Bobby has worn that blue, right? (laughs) Right. You know, she did look, you know, I mean, she wouldn't. Well, Joan doesn't use her sexuality in that way. Let's talk about that conversation uh, between Joan and Peggy. You've got Joan saying, you want to be taken seriously. Stop dressing like a little girl. But Joan has also makes it clear that this is, she's like, you're in a world I wanted nothing to do with. I play my game. You know, and she, wonderful thing she says about, you, you've never listened to a word I said, which is an interesting <laughs> perspective. Fabulous, fabulous comment. That is not Joan's game. That's Bobby Barrett's game. But these are two voices in Peggy's head, I think, at this point in time. Absolutely. These are, the, yeah. these are two where where she has felt competitive with Joan in the office setting to the extent that she's probably felt she has to tune her out. And we've had that discussion to where Bobby broke through to a certain degree. And I think that in a way broke everything open for Peggy, a bit of a watershed where now Joan can be heard. Bobby broke through within the new girl because he starts calling Don by his first name. So we know that she broke through then. Jones, so now Jones' advice might make more sense to Peggy, right? It's coming, Peggy's a, Peggy's a new girl at this point. So now when Jones says what she says and is kind of like, yeah, you never listened to me anyway. And, Joan, and Peggy's kind of like, yeah, you know what? That's true, but I've got a new set of ears now. I'm saying this is Peggy's dialogue, where internal dialogue, where, you know, now Joan can be heard a little bit. So I think the exchange with Joan is what obviously leads her to feel like, okay, I'm going to turn the tables on the guys and go into the the nightclub and live in their world a little bit and not be such a victim, right? Because that's ultimately Joan's credo is don't, you're not a victim. I feel like they're both making an impact on yeah. young oh, Peggy, absolutely. right? <laughs> it's still, it still doesn't, it, it's not, it's not a simple story of here's how I broke the boys club kind of thing. In a madman way, it sets you up for that, but it does not happen that way. There's no happy endings in this episode. So the other 
thread on that on that chain of kind of like just shitting on the nearest woman, which is like nine tenths of this episode, is the way Don treats Betty when she's wearing that little getup from the Memorial Day fashion show, right? the bathing suit, the bikini. And Betty's all kind of like, oh, everybody was buying them and whatever. And Don, this is after he's <laughs> after he's continued his affair with Bobby, by the way, shames her, just completely shames her with, with it's desperate and 15-year-old lifeguards and blah, blah, blah. And I, what does she and say? It, I, she says, oh, I didn't know. He says, it's you're desperate. And she said, I didn't know that or something like that. It yeah, was a that's exactly shocking yeah. response, right? Like she's right. so good at defer, at, <laughs> def, at being at deferring at 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 giving her power right away that's her first Mm -hmm. instinct and then her second instinct is to get angry and and in life right she has to you know her first instinct is to make everything smooth everything over just we're gonna put that in the bank for later right (laughs) exactly um but that's but that's don's move but it's the same move as everybody else it's it's pete going to his father with the create with the creative peggy didn't like yeah it's Peggy getting shut out of the account work. It's Freddie telling her, don't worry, you didn't want to be there anyway. And it's Pete looking at her disdainfully at, at the club, right? It's it's all of a piece. Oh, and by the way, one last thing. The woman, if you look that shot of Peggy, when they say they're going to the TomTom Club, uh, when the, the client invites them out. Yeah. That shot of Peggy looking down the hall at Peggy and there is the Marilyn. Mm. from earlier in the episode like kind of maneuvering like Peggy out of the way like kind of like shouldering past Peggy in the hall oh I didn't catch that that's right then and it's just this great kind of visual metaphor literally Marilyn shoving her out of the way oh that's really good it's very cool that's really good that's funny and she and and of course Peggy is an Irene Dunn which I love that's you know the thing about the thing that's so interesting about Freddie and Peggy is the sexism being so integrated into who yeah. he is. He right. adores her. Absolutely. He treasures her. That's right. Freddie adores Peggy and he still shits on her. He has no, he just doesn't even, it's, it's completely uncon. You know, some Pete, Pete is, you know, fuck Pete Campbell, right? Pete is, Pete is a, Pete is a worse person, but he's, he's not more sexist than, than Freddie Ronson. You know, but it's part of this, it's part of the whole, the whole debate and, and, and argument that to what extent should uh, a man in his fifties, like Freddie Rumson, I'm assuming he's in his fifties, let's say he's in his fifties, be, held accountable to the standards we have today for how he treats someone like Peggy. We know how he feels about her. He adores her. And he wouldn't do anything consciously to harm her or be disrespectful towards her. Yet, he harms her and is disrespectful towards her in just by the, the DNA the, of their relationship includes yes. that. Yes. And so how, how do we, how would we, should we, could we, hold Freddie accountable for that. We like to think he knows better, but maybe he doesn't know better or he wasn't raised to know better and he oh. wasn't brought up in a culture to know better. But yet, as a grown man, he ought to know better, we like to think. He does not know better. Not consciously, no. Well, who's ever right told him? Wrong. 
but he's never but he doesn't know don't be sexist don't be correct this is the man who said it's like watching a dog playing the piano (laughs) yeah like this you know he he absolutely doesn't know better the way you know better is by being interested in what people are saying about it now who's saying it right now in 1962 what happens to freddie rumson in does freddie take on watching reading some feminist literature as as more becomes available you know i'm gonna i'm gonna guess no (laughs) 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 but i mean that's i mean i look listen i've been accused by some of our listeners of being uh a little overly woke in a condescending way. I can take that criticism. I will tell you that in the last several years, what I've done is really started listening for where I've had my own gaps about how I speak, how I be, how I think when it comes to race, when it comes to mm, trans people's experience and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and language. Like there's a world, like, you know, I am a, I am, I am an other in a lot of ways and I can list them, but why this isn't therapy, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm also, you know, a white woman who's just underneath a boomer. I am not a boomer, (laughs) you know, but right. So there's plenty to look at. Why do I get to look at it? Cause I decided I'm interested in mm-hmm. in in doing better and and in, and in being responsible for where I haven't right. been. All right, let's take a quick break on that one, and we will be right back. I love this ad campaign. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. I love this campaign, and you know the way that it is set up. Again, you kind of go to my my view, worldview, my politics, my feminism, my whatever. I should hate this campaign. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one it's just such a great it's just a great it's just an absolutely great campaign well it's paul um, for once having a good creative idea how about that i was gonna say uh it was paul i was absolutely gonna say i was like see he's not a hack he was that was a genuine like what i can't remember the word don used it was that is an idea or that is a but there's a there's a in advertising right there's a difference between like the idea the big idea the concept yeah. And and the execution of it. No, it was a genuine exa- it was a genuine creative he, idea. Thanks Clearasil is not a campaign, is <laughs> not a concept. It's just the words. Like that was a perfect example oh, yeah, of what's totally. not a camp. Peggy had a concept too. Yeah, it's called reality TV and it actually became a thing. Those photos they were looking at were actual consumers. So she was saying put them on a date and do a whole backstory and a whole thing. That's reality TV, right? That's just that's a commercial use. It's basically that would be called branded content now. That is yes, branded that's content. Right. <laughs> so Peggy is innovating branded content forty five years before its day, which is just you know another another brick on the wall of Peggy's terrific chops. But Paul, who does not have terrific chops, well, you know, I the, see the blind squirrel opinion. catches a nut every now and then. That's what this is. This is not this. There is nothing larger to make of Paul having a good idea. I'm sorry. I disagree point to another great paul campaign it's not the point we we we're coming yeah, that kind of is the point no i haven't seen everything that paul has done i've only seen him in this show which is about peggy being great so we're seeing paul who's been out of steam and so i don't i don't deter i don't declare that that means that paul has no talent this was a genuine idea and and he knew it was a genuine idea so he actually could recognize when you can recognize the the greatness of the idea that means you you understand it 
Freddie's another one who understands a great idea. He doesn't always come up with them. And don't know that we've ever seen Freddie come up with anything. Freddie no, we is see good very at, little of Freddie's work. But we see, yeah. we see a fair amount of Paul's work. Most of it's hack shit. <laughs> I think that's I think that's I think that's documented. Okay. <laughs> you know what it is. I just like Michael Gladys so much. Well, that may be. <laughs> so I was we, always we all... I was always Team Paul. <laughs> fair, fair, fair enough. We can we can let our biases speak on that, and that's totally fair. But it doesn't mean that the character's good as Trump. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wow. All right. That's fabulous. All right. Speaking of fantasy versus reality. Oh, boy. <laughs> the whole episode has a tremendous amount of instances where we're... And the, the, the model in the elevator to Pete puts it perfectly. They get the They fall in love with the photograph, and then when you walk in the room... It's all changed, or whatever she says to that effect. There's a fantasy, there's what you think you're getting, and then there's the way it turns out in real life. And the, 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 almost the next thing that happens in the plot is <laughs> Pete taking advantage of this poor girl. I don't know that he's taking advantage of her. Well, I shouldn't say that. They're taking advantage of each other. Let's Maybe we can sit, put it that way. It is the first time, to our knowledge, Peggy aside, that we have seen Pete fuck around on, on Trudy. Peggy aside is a big aside, but you know it's a big aside. And there's a but it's a different human being it's a different, out there as a result. Of that. Sure, <laughs> um, there's you know, that. It doesn't make the adultery worse. It just is a fact. While it's certainly consensual, there's a certain amount of taking advantage of someone's desperation <laughs> that is involved in Peggy. Excuse me, in Pete making the moves on this this wannabe starlet because he he knows that she's vulnerable. He knows that she's feeling low no the, the power dynamic goes back to everything we were talking about before he's the he's the executive he's the mm-hmm. man i mean he 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 can't do shit for her right, right in <laughs> and, this case. and she doesn't know that so that's the that's the manipulation but Truly. she is certainly a woman who is not uncomfortable she's bringing, making her own decisions no question bringing a guy home to that home just as soon as we cross the divide uh we we want, we see her apartment and it's you know it's dark and it's she's a young person and she's living there and the old lady on the other side of the the fake wall boy the oh boy cur- the curtain that's that's a, that's a, that's a um that's a mood killer i'll say but really it's about the reality versus the fantasy. I'm going to get to go home with this beautiful blonde and we're going to do our thing and I'm going to go home to my wife and I'm cheating on her. But, but in order to do that, <laughs> you got to really, you got to, you got to swallow it, a lot of, uh, keep it quiet for mom across the, across the right. threshold. <laughs> yeah. You got to ignore a lot of reality on the, on the way to that fantasy. And by the same token with Don somewhat in reverse as he's, uh, getting hot and heavy with Bobby Barrett, she lets it be known that he is a topic of conversation. Hmm. To him, uh, this fooling around, it seems, is entirely about the mystery and entirely about you You walk in the door with whatever you came with and, and leave with the same. Uh, there is no past. There is no reputation. There is no uh, any of that. When she starts talking, as we know he he's asked her not to do, she goes right into the subject that's going to 
graded him the, the most, which is his uh, other women that he's been with. And she names one by name. That is, but that's unforgivable with Don, right? Like that is, you do not go there. This is not what this is about. I'm not here to have some discussion of my past or your past or even say that there is a past. It's, a, it's all right now. And that's all part of what's fascinating about Bobby. I and mean, we discussed this last week and we discussed it with, with Melinda McGraw. Bobby has no shame. About, I mean, like in a positive way, like she... Nothing to hide. Bobby, Bobby is very comfortable. It's what I said earlier about her. She's very comfortable in her sexuality. She edges toward it. She's like, I'm flattered by my ability to keep you interested. She's completely comfortable with her sluttiness and his sluttiness. And the disposable nature of such relationships. And she assumed... I mean, she's again, she's flattered by it. She wants to be on his level of it. But she certainly didn't... It didn't occur to her that he... That his fantasy version of himself is that he's not this guy. That's right. That he is. That he clearly is. That's the fantasy versus the reality. That's right. And he lives 100% in the fantasy. There is no, there's nothing real about his, the time they share together, when they're doing things they shouldn't do. He doesn't, that's his way of dealing with it is denying it really exists. Yeah, and the re- well, and the reality is shattering because look at look at the Memorial Day event, you know the fantasy, and it, it it's not that he has a fantasy; it's just that this is what he's selling to the world, is that is that he is this war hero, when we know that the 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 reality is sh- is shattering to him. So he, it, you know, then literally would shatter would shatter his life, right? Would break his 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 marriage and his you know his public standing. And and a moment on the Memorial Day at the club, which was a great scene. We crab probably deserve deserves more <laughs> deserves more attention. <laughs> I just love that moment. Well, I love that whole that whole bit about the guy reading the remarks off the cards about service. Again, this is less than 20 years after the liberation of Europe. We have barbecues. It's not palpable to to many people in our country these days. There was still a draft in 1962. There is a dividing line. You know, the remarks that 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 older guy was making at the club was one of sort of solemn gratitude in the sense of we had to go risk our lives. We know people who gave their lives personally. Our sons or grandsons, for all we know, may be asked to go risk their lives. Mm. So it was a the whole concept of the military and serving your country is a grave, grave fucking thing. It's a volunteer army now. We have people who are, who I include myself in this, grow up entirely in a bubble, completely unaffected, have nothing to do with the military or, or service to the country in that way. I don't know that that's a good thing. I mean, it's it's a it's a prosperous thing. We're a, a nation that's prosperous enough to have enough people who volunteer to to defend our country. That that seems to be enough numbers wise. But you wouldn't get that attitude today if you were in some hoity-toity club and uh, in in up in Austin, New York, or wherever. That speech would read differently now. It would be a little bit more platitude, a little bit more platitude and a little less emotion and a little less acknowledgement of what the reality versus the fantasy of military service can be. It would be way more superficial now. It changed. It changed with Vietnam, right? 
well, that's when the draft ended. Again, going back to the, the, the sentiment of the scene and calling out the guy who was the rough rider, you know, it's like, it's like we've been fighting wars a long time. So great. And we have veterans and we have people who've yet to unfortunately, you know, go and fight. Anyway, we could, we could probably do an episode on, on that country club. I love when they're talking about the prison sing sing and all that oh and that the rosenbergs <laughs> the summer the, the casual... summer the rosenbergs were right oh Boy, that it's was hot, hot. <laughs> well it was hot for them too actually yeah but the 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 capper on this fantasy versus reality thing of course is bobby saying my son and my daughter and she's at sarah lawrence and all of a sudden don's like snapped out of this <laughs> this this horny horny uh vapors that he's got to the reality of her being a mom Right before that, the same thing happened to Betty. Betty yeah. was talking oh, to yeah. Arthur and she's mortified. And then she and then, you know, here's your domino. And then she goes out and buys a, a bikini. Right. The, the, the skimpy dress. Right. Well, I was also wondering, though, but Don takes a glance over her shoulder, sees her and Arthur talking and then goes out and rings Bobby from the 14th green or whatever it was. Well, in that like, case... Do you think he sees that that the conversation with Arthur and it's like, all right, well, I can, I'm gonna. Was that his inspiration? No, because Don on a Don, depending on his mood, would have sniffed that out and snuffed it out or made Betty pay for it. And listen, maybe, but maybe it is why he took it out on her. Yeah, later. But I just I think if what Don wanted to do was get the hell out of there, and we certainly know that Don's flight reaction is intense. In that moment, that was the driving force, and what he saw was opportunity. He didn't care what else registered. He saw, oh, she's distracted. I'm going to make a phone call. He was plotting. That was He just saw the opportunity. I, I don't disagree, but I think sequentially, he told her she, he was leaving before he called Bobby. Mm. It was after, but, 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 but it was also after he was, got that false recognition for service. Yes. That he was certainly uneasy. Whatever the whatever the cause, he was uneasy. It's it's all part of this fantasy versus reality uh element, huge element of of the episode. I'ma read the definition of male gaze. In feminist theory, the male gaze is the act of depicting women and the world in the visual arts and in literature from a masculine heterosexual perspective that presents and represents women as sexual objects for the pleasure of the heterosexual male viewer. That is, originally it's from the film theorist Laura Mulvey, who has a, a little bit of a more nuanced whatever. But that's the understood cultural dynamic, and it is specifically cultural because it is mm-hmm. specifically about how women are utilized on screen is where it really came from right but it's meant to be from the perspective of the male it's the male's perspective gazing at whatever we're seeing i'll give you the the laurel mulvey definition although sometimes described as the male gaze mulvey's concept is more ac- more accurately described as a heterosexual masculine gaze Visual media that respond to masculine voyeurism tends to sexualize women for a male viewer. As Mulvey wrote, women are characterized by their, quote, to be looked atness in cinema. The fact, 
(laughs) then there's an actual viable debate on the table that bras are for men. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, Victoria's Secret isn't only for women, right? It is for partners but that's but these guys actually women I don't think that's what he meant have, yeah but <laughs> women don't you know I, I i think it i'm gonna say it even though i think it needs not be said it is certainly what peggy was screaming in her head and not saying is i am not buying this for you now there is a you know who who determined that women need to wear bras in the in the beginning of time was probably men. The, but that's not what we're talking about now. When you're, you know, this this actually throws back to the deodorant in season yeah. one. What do women right? want? What do women want? And and it's the women that might be buying the deodorant. But when a woman is out bra shopping, these women at this time who <laughs> Who probably who half of them aren't even getting dressed in front of their their partners, right? And their husbands. We see three or four women getting dressed at the opening of the episode, and their partners are nowhere near. I mean, there we're going to tie in the fantasy versus reality part of it, and also the the actual fact of what you're saying, which is it's not about your fucking cock. It's not about <laughs> you. It's not about you, your cock, your fantasy. Yeah, I need something that fucking fits and doesn't doesn't you know give me give me sore shoulders or whatever you could fill in the blank but i I, my point is you're definitely not when you're shopping for your bra and again unless you're shopping for lingerie for a particular whatever when you're out when these women in particular when they're out there shopping for their lingerie account right playtex exactly (laughs) you're you're not thinking about what the man is thinking about your bra. You're just not. It's not a thing. It's crazy. It was even crazy that that got on the table and and that they all gave it so much credibility, you know. It wasn't crazy with the deodorant. That had that was interesting with the right guard. This was not interesting. This was enraging. <laughs> but a good campaign nonetheless, right? <laughs> right. It really was a beautiful it was a beautiful campaign because that's because that's a woman's fantasy. See, yeah, if they exactly. they think a it's a man's fantasy. A woman can get in on that topic, right? A woman Absolutely. can get in on that, right? I am going to see myself as a Marilyn or as a Jackie. That's valid, it, you know, me then, right? I, th- that's valid. We do that because we're because by the way, we're all participating in the male gaze. Mm-hmm. We're all, you know, that's what's right. kind of interesting about it is it these definitions spe- specify heterosexual males, but Sal's in on it. Mm-hmm. I'm in on it. Jones you in know, on it. Jones in on it. We're all in on it. We're all we're all complicit in in sexism is is what we are. But that leads us to what what I think is actually the most interesting element of the theme because the so the male so at first this episode appears to be about the male gaze from that very blatant moment with Paul doing his demonstration pointing mm-hmm. through the office, right? Yeah. Um and the uh, and the the birth of the the campaign but the twist on that really now i like that and Mar- <laughs> oh it's wonderful yeah it's the other way around um a twist on the male gaze because very there's what there's a lot of in this episode is the effect of being gazed at and actually being seen hmm. which you already brought up 
Bobby exposed, and we've talked about the exposure as a theme comes up in this in in this mm-hmm. show about secrets, yeah. <laughs> right? It, it comes up a lot because of of, of secrets of secrets and repression, mm-hmm. actually. So when people are exposed, but there's a lot of that in this particular episode. So start, you know, so the one place to start is with Bobby exposing Don, and I'll take it back to last episode where Rachel first exposed Don. So Don's experience of being exposed as the bad person that he is in his mind, that's the part that he doesn't want to deal with, right? So there Rachel it started last week with Rachel and well Don doesn't see himself as a Lothario because what he's doing is he's constantly licking wounds. That sure. every every relationship and every affair is is a bandage over his wounds. Right. But so that's- he's too busy feeling, you know, trying to remedy whether that's the booze and everything else and the whole psychodynamic with him. But he does he's not connecting those dots. And when someone connects them for him, that's just that's way too heavy. Right. And then uh, fast forward to the very end of the episode. The last thing that happened with with Bobby was when he tied her up where he said, I told you to stop talking. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And then the last scene is Sally watching daddy shave. That's right. I'm not going to talk. I don't want you to cut yourself. And that was so I mean, the look on his face. Yeah. It's a ton of bricks. He was so exposed. It was so painful for him. And it was, that was just more than he could handle. So I don't know how conscious he is of the reflection in the mirror. Right. That's right. And then we, and just by the way, worth mentioning, I don't know how this all ties in, but when Pete comes home after being with that woman, he looks at himself in the mirror. It's not a mirror. It's a reflection of a, of a, of a, of a piece of glass. Right. But it's held for a long moment. Mm. Right. But what does he see? Like, well, I'm guessing like, it's no shame it's more, at all. <laughs> I, it, well, yeah, it, it's sort of like reflections of your of your actions, reflections right, but does of he, yourself. But it, or, I'm just guessing he has no, there's no, is, it's Pete? just he just looks, right? Yeah. For Pete? Well, yeah. yeah I mean, we're, we're left to fill in what he might be thinking, but that's all he does. Yeah. All right. My guess is he's not really thinking. <laughs> well, Don, you Don looks in the mirror. Don looks in the mirror and sees like shame and horror, and you know sees yeah, sees those what's dots exposed. are connecting for him. Pete, Pete, Pete's, Pete's, Pete's like, a decade oh, younger, a, <laughs> a decade younger, and um, you know fewer notches on his bedpost, perhaps. Oh, I just think Pete just doesn't. Again, you've got I, Don. I, I who think actually I detected has... a little. I think I detected a little smile, a little smirk from Pete. Yeah, he's all proud of himself. There's no guilt. He's not. He doesn't. No. There's no. Uh, there's no deeper. <laughs> yeah, deeper he's level not, to he's be. He's not ruminating. Like oh, yeah. oh, look at that's the guy in the mirror that cheated on Trudy. No, but right. Nope. I'm just saying. But but Madman has put all of these reflections in there in this episode. That's my point. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So the other key thing here that we we get introduced to is Duck's family, which is quite a prized collection of humans incredible <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but i just love duck talking to his kids i could listen to that all day I, I if someone would write that for me i would listen to that on a loop duck talking to the sun hey slugger and <laughs> just I, all I, honestly duck 
talking to Chauncey was some of the best acting. That, is- that whole like that's a relationship, and uh, I will get to Chauncey. And well, my that's God. the way it's painted, right? Is yeah, you know, I'm uncomfortable with my children, but give me a good dog, and I'm I'm I let my hair down. But there was such a dichotomy between Duck's behavior with the dog, seeing him reacting, and then his reaction when he learns. Chauncey's coming back. You were giving Chauncey back to you. He's your dog. Nobody really likes him. And <laughs> Frank's allergic or whatever. He's, you'd think he'd be delighted with that. And then it was, and then he got all this backstory, right? We left it there. So we left the dog with you so you could have some consistency and blah, 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 and all this kind of grown up bullshit that nobody really cares about. And what you realize is like, how much drinking has he done in front of Chauncey in his life? Mm. Chauncey's going to come back. It's my drinking buddy, right? I mean, that's effectively what, you know, what we can call it. That, oh my oh, that, God. See, I tr- saw the opposite. I saw he's about to drink and he can't have Chauncey watch him do it. Yeah, that's in the moment. But it's it's earlier in the episode and a day or two earlier, you know, in time that he learns Chauncey's coming back to live with him, that they're giving him back the dog. And and they think it's like, oh, just give dad back his dog. Oh, and you're But his saying- reaction is very... It's not welcoming to Chauncey. He is not looking forward to Chauncey. See, I always thought it was never about Chauncey. I didn't didn't know what it was, but I couldn't put my finger on it. This put my finger on it. My take was always, he was just angry. Like, Mm -hmm. my wife fucking leaves me, and I get sober, and now my kids don't don't know how to talk to me. And and you're going to throw me back my dog after keeping my dog? Fuck you. That's what I always thought. I think there was something specific about Chaunt. He the the linkage, the way an addict links, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, places, th- and things. Is so in AA they say avoid the people, places, and things. Wh- who you drank with, where you drank, like that. Chaunt and dogs. Apparently, that's really no. Damn, <laughs> yes. that's really interesting. No question, because and I didn't realize it until I was able to put some of Duck's reaction in a little bit of a different context. But then also when he first goes to get the drink and sees Chauncey, and it's it's a lot of that per, that perspective, right? The perspective right. No, looking this is down right. on yeah. looking down on Sally, looking up at Don, looking down at Chauncey. He looking could up not at Don. have Chauncey look at him. But it, right, exactly. I know, and it wasn't just oh, I'm shamed in this moment. Mm. It's this is what I was afraid of. So I'm interesting. Go, I, I I'm about I'm tempted here and I'm about to give into temptation and I'm not going to go back to drinking with this dog in in the room with me again. It's so just so interesting. That's how I got in trouble the first time or maybe it's different this time. I mean God only knows what's actually going through his head specifically, but he knows Chauncey means trouble. So interesting. And giving away no, Chauncey very... was and giving away with Chauncey wasn't like this is my last shot at redemption. It's, I'm not going to drink in front of Chauncey anymore. So I will be drinking not in front of Chauncey. Now, to address, giving away is a very strong term. <laughs> I, I just, I, did, I would like I did, to reminisce. Bur- as far as Chauncey goes, I buried the lead. Right. Chauncey, that is a radical life, um, life change for you Chauncey. Know, re- recall that we did have a blog. And, you know, part of having a blog is commenters. And there's a, it's very interactive with, with we had our fingers on the pulse of, of the fan base. And my God, people were, I mean, and you know how it is. You know mm. how people are with animals. Oh, it's God. like, 
Don can cheat and this person can this (laughs) and they could have a, you could have a rape and a murder and a this and a that. And again, the reviews were all like, what's with all the smoking? And you're like, what, 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 you're not addressing the cheating. Well, similarly, people were like, lost their fucking minds over Chauncey. And I got to say this time, because I never had quite that. I mean, I didn't like it. Don't get me wrong. But I also was like, I didn't, I didn't, I don't know, this time it just, it nearly killed me and I wanted to stab that duck with a crab. <laughs> uh, um, no, it was, it hit me differently too. It was a lot weightier to me, the whole thing. And, you know, there's that one shot where I forget they say Chauncey's name or they're talking about Chauncey. He looks up with the, with the, with the water spraying everywhere. <laughs> when Pete... <laughs> Oh yeah, Pete. wanted to talk about creating a fantasy. I'm gonna no, I'm gonna get a dog for the office. I, th- I think having a dog in the schmuck. office is cool, right? Because dogs don't need people <laughs> and like a home life. No, they're just props to make Pete Campbell a, a more right. warm looking. Yeah, <laughs> to bring clients in. Um, oh, but no, that Pete. but that that whole <laughs> that whole thing with Duck and Chauncey was way deeper to me this time. Like I I got it. That was. It was really, really deep with with Duck and Chauncey, and I, I think I think I think I'm just late to the game. I figured everybody else was kind of in on that a little bit, but yeah, I think I I, I don't know. I, you know, let's see. Uh, tell us on uh, on the social media what you think, listeners, coiners, coiners. We want to hear if uh, what you what your take is on. Uh, it's a great. I think it's a great theory. So. We are going to take a break. Stick around. We've got Lisa M. Lilly and me talking about Mad Men and Peggy and Buffy. And then on the other side of that, quotes. So today I'm talking with Lisa M. Lilly. She is a fiction writer. She's got a uh, mystery series called the QC Davis Mystery Series. And she's also got a four book Awakening Supernatural Thriller series. But to our interest, or at least to my interest, uh, she has a wonderful podcast called Buffy and the Art of Story. Lisa's got a whole thing where she instructs on the structure of storytelling, and then she's got this podcast about Buffy, where she applies, you know, those kinds of things to Buffy, and I just eat it up. So hello, Lisa, and welcome to They Coined It. Thank you. It's so good to talk to you, Roberta. And I, I uh, have so enjoyed listening to They Coined It. So I'm thrilled to uh, to be here. And you got me rewatching Mad Men, which is awesome. We're here to talk about Peggy. So I was sort of seeing New Girl and Maiden Form as a little bit of a part one, part two for just for Peggy in her sort of how she's figuring out how to be. One of the things that Dan and I talk about is how uh, norm busting Mad Men is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely hard to talk about a single episode in a linear fashion. We we don't we gave up trying. But I'd love to know like your thoughts on the storytelling structures that are used where you where you see them or where they don't or how, you know. So, I'm going to shut up. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's so interesting because I never I haven't rewatched Mad Men in a while and I not watched it all in a row, except when it first came out. Um, And I wasn't really looking at story the same way then. So it was so interesting after you and I connected Mm. to try to look at the Mad Men episodes in this framework of the, the major plot points I look for in Buffy that pretty reliably show up there. Um, 
And Mad Men is interesting because I think it's much more of the, the whole season is more of an arc. But I do see in the episodes, and it's almost, I feel like I almost have to follow a particular character. And then I will see those plot moments there for Peggy in um, both of them. But depending who is more of the main character, I'll see a stronger structure for that person. And I feel like in New Girl, it's it's a little more heavily weighted. There's Don and there's Peggy. And then in... Um, Maiden form, we've got more clearly Peggy's story, but also there's this subplot with Duck where I I see these plot points for him as well. And then this awesome interweaving of theme in particularly in Maiden form, I saw this really strong theme. But you, you see it in New Girl too, this idea of this interplay of we've got this new girl Jean coming in, but it's sort of new girl in terms of who Peggy is, right? Who she's going to be. And Bobby is his new girl, even though what kind of, what version of new girl is that? And we saw Rachel uh, Mencken in the middle and he finds out she's married. And so it's, it's, I'm sure Rachel looked at Bobby and thought, oh, okay, this is your your new, she probably wouldn't say girl, but same idea. Yeah. You brought up two things that I forgot how heartbreaking they they were. The the scene with, with Rachel and your heart is breaking a little bit for Don, but just for the whole thing, that romance that he shit the bed on. Yeah. And one of the themes I saw in and then the oh the other thing I was going to say is, is the is Chauncey man the fans yes. the fans went nuts on Chauncey and I remember thinking why are y'all going so nuts on this and then I was like practically weeping when that went I mean and I'm not a dog person yes. but that but Chauncey like how do you yeah I'm oh. it's funny I'm not a dog person and of course I I don't know if anybody likes duck. But my heart broke for both of them in that moment when Chauncey is looking at him and Duck is thinking about having the drink. And I thought, oh, God, this is heartbreaking. And then he puts Chauncey out. And I thought, no, don't do it. So what we get in The New Girl is the reveal of finally what happened to Peggy's baby. And the reveal, I mean, not just what happened to Peggy's baby so much as we see that Anita, her sister, was pregnant, at, you know, because we've, we've been watching Anita have a baby who was probably right around the same age. So there's been this question, whose baby is that? Yes. Do you know, this is the first time I noticed that, that Anita was pregnant. And I thought, oh, it's not Peggy's baby. So there we go. That's what I was going to bring up. For some reason, I got it right away. And my sister and I had the blog and she got it right away. And we all got it right away. And, but I mean... For years, and you can, you're now an attestment to that. Is that the right language? Um, yeah, close enough. <laughs> um, so Matthew Weiner gets a lot right. I wouldn't be doing this podcast if if he didn't. But I think he, right. I think he miscalculated a few things about season in season two. Um, one of them was that. One of them was that apparently was too subtle for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people, a lot of smart story, story wise, you know, educated, careful TV watching people missed it. And in general, what we've been discussing as we've been recording up until these episodes and including is that the main mystery of season two is really what happened in those 14 months to everybody. 
that's kind of the mystery. That's where your brain is. And I think that that ended up being a little more frustrating for viewers than it was supposed to be. It messed us up a little bit. I don't think I started watching Mad Men until it might have been season four. So I saw some of it and then I went back and watched on the, I, this was back when Netflix was, they would send you DVDs uh-huh. and I watched on those DVDs. So it probably wasn't quite as frustrating because I was backing up and watching and that's a different experience. Um, and the, it was very subtle with obviously, cause I'd never, it must be cause I missed it. People were confused for years. People to this day are still what whatever happened to Peggy's baby. And that's like, yeah, interesting. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. Why did you first respond to Peggy? And then where, where does she live for you? And in these episodes, there were a couple things. One is obviously her being in this profession, this men's profession. And even though, so in my non-writer life, I'm a lawyer. I don't practice a lot anymore. And when I came into law, it was graduating law school classes had been 50-50 men and women for probably the last five years or so, Mm. or maybe 10 years. But that is still not, even now, is still not reflected in the higher levels of large firms, in the number of judges overall, and all kinds of areas. So I identified with Peggy, even though my life was nowhere was nowhere near as as difficult as hers is. And of course, her wanting to go from secretary to this copywriting job. When I was making a living uh, before I went to law school, I did temp and secretarial work. And I wrote novels on the side, which of course gets no respect at all because they weren't published. And I so identified with her feeling kind of stuck in this. She is trying to do this work she loves, which means she has to communicate with men more. That's who does this. And she doesn't have that much in common with a lot of the women she works with who don't even understand why she would want to do that job. And I think that I felt a lot for her in in that uh, those efforts. And you really have to have a male mentor because who else is she going to have? Right. So John is this great mentor to her. And uh, he's not easy, <laughs> you know, and that. Right. He's, he's very flawed. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's a wonderful mentor in the moments that he mentors her, but it's not like, Hey buddy, let's go have lunch. And we're going to talk about writing today. I mean, he's done. And she, I don't remember what some of the dialogue is and in, in, even in which episode now, but I think she might say it to Bobby of like, or Joan, I don't remember. There were so many great conversations where she talks about, where she talks about Don, what she know, how she knows him, and of course, we've now found out that what he does mean to her. Yeah, I I loved finding that out. I think with Bobby, Bobby keeps saying, "Well, are you a secretary? Are you in love with him? Are you you know, trying to get it? Why are you doing this?" And she says, "He's done so much for me." And first, she says, "He made me a copywriter." And I love Bobby's response, which was, I suspect you made you made yourself a copywriter. But then we get that flashback of what Don, the, the real reason, yeah, it's the copywriting, but it's also he's the one who came in and said, you know, do whatever you have to do and kind of gave her the keys to get out. It was interesting when I was watching it this time, I caught that it, there's a slight contradiction to it because she's saying this never happened. <laughs> and the doctors are like, tell us that it happened. And then he's like, mm-hmm. and then Don is do what the doctors say. 
and this never happened, which, you know, it, it, it just, all of that was happening all at once. Yeah, I didn't really pick up on that. But I think that is really significant that first in a way, it is a little different than for Don in a way. So she first had to admit it happened to the doctor so she could leave, right, and then pretend it didn't. You will be amazed how much this never happened, right? Or yeah, and then you see almost this reflection of it when he gets angry at her for not having her work done. And at first, I thought it was a show for the other guys. But even when they're alone, he almost acts like he has no idea why she couldn't get her work done. And she has to say to him, hey, I need the money for your bail back. Because uh, he so wants to pretend that even that moment never happened. He has built his life on that never happened. That childhood never happened. That stealing somebody's identity never happened. Yeah. And we're starting, I mean, this whole show is about consequences, right? It's it's very much about the consequences of, of, of living of living however it is you're living, thinking that there's not going to be consequences. So you really start to see it in maiden form. One of the themes that I picked up in maiden form was, I mean, it's more, it's very obviously about the male gaze, right? But it's very much right. about, it's also very much about how you are seen in general. And there's some gender stuff there because it's so funny. I was always so distracted by Don in that pink towel that I just got for the first time that it's a pink towel. <laughs> That it's he's in a and in a pink bathroom in a pink yeah. bathroom and that because he, I noticed that when he washed his his the shaving cream off when he stopped shaving it was a pink I was like oh you are all in pink um, but that was about you know how Sally was looking at him how he would, couldn't look at himself all in light of how Bobby was looking at him through through what she had heard how other people look at him. And then you can take that and go back to that's how Rachel looked at him. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. You know, and that, well, that in was the an previous ep episode. In the previous episode. And again, it's, I don't often couple episodes as I was looking at it with Peggy for the two episodes, but now even that, Rachel, that was one of the things that I picked up in that scene with Rachel for the first time was that maybe for the first time, sometimes I forget what I've seen. <laughs> I find old ep ep essays right. about what I thought I forgot about. It wasn't just Rachel seeing him. He really did not want to be seen with Bobby through Rachel's eyes through with Bobby. And it wasn't just any woman. I mean, it was, yes, it was a woman who wasn't his wife. And that's bad enough in Rachel's eyes. Bobby is a very clear kind of affair. You know, it's just, it's yes. just all over that. And I, Something, I, when you were talking about that, how people see each other and themselves, when I watched it again specifically because I knew we were going to be talking, I noticed the number of mirrors and reflections mm. in maiden form. You have in conversation, the, the men are all saying, well, women have a – they want to be – they project onto the women. They want to be Jackie or Marilyn because that's how we see them. And you get all these comments about, well, someone's wife had an opinion and women want these two sides because we want them. And when Don shows the clients the Harlequin bra and the layout with the two women, he says, it's a very flattering mirror. Mm. And we get Pete looks in a mirror after he's had sex with the, the uh, model that he picks up. He comes home and looks in a mirror. Bobby's looking in a mirror when she says to Don, it's very flattering to keep you, to be able to keep you 
interested. And that moment with her when he gets so angry about her, you know, telling him, she says, you have a reputation, enjoy it. And he says something like, does it make you feel better to think that I'm like you? So he is seeing both how women see him, but he is, he is trying to push that back on her. And then at the end, of course, he's looking in this mirror. And I even see Chauncey is, Duck says to Pete, dogs are better than wives. There's no there's no problem with communication or communication so clear. And like, here's Chauncey. He is Duck's mirror. He is reflecting back at him his best side and his worst side. So you have all these reflections. He wasn't going to drink in front of Chauncey. In the, in the, the yeah. cruelty was the cruelty, um, but he really he wasn't going to let Chauncey see him drink. Because Chauncey was very clearly communicating, hey, look at how I look at you. And Sally, likewise, in that uh, the scene at the club when they have the veteran stand and Sally's looking at Don and just applauding and she has this look of adoration yes. on her face. And that's he leaves after that. And then at the end, she looks at him that same way. It, it's this such an interesting, you know, women as mirrors for men, but what the men project onto them. One of the things in our in in the season wrap up discussion we had with Matt Soller Sites and with my sister, one of the things that I, I want to always tether to as we move forward in this show is in season one, we discover that Don stole this man's identity, right? We get that that full story. And the rest of it is now what's it like to live with that? Yeah. What is his life? It's definitely starting to take a toll on him. And it's one, of, it's one of the things, as much as I love this show and I, ooh, we got seven seasons of Don, of it taking a toll. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't get, no spoilers, but it's, it, it doesn't turn chipper at any point. I mean, there's, there's high points for everybody. And one of the things about Don Draper, how we root for Don is, because it's not easy sometimes, but how we do it is, he does try to be good, at least sometimes. He yeah, he keeps sometimes. <laughs> yeah, he keeps trying. And sometimes, like you said, it's – I almost find it painful to watch because oh, yeah. now I know what's coming and – or at least I vaguely remember and I think, oh, no, this is this moment. But Bobby says – I can't remember – it must be a new girl where he says something to – she says something to Peggy like, he's a good man, isn't he? You wouldn't expect it. And Peggy says something like, I don't expect him to be anything other than how he is or what he is. She's got Don's number in all its complexities, right? She's got, she she, yeah, she knows she, he's the good man that he is. She also knows he's the son of a bitch that he is. Yeah, and she's loyal to him because he, he, he isn't exactly loyal to her, but he has been there for her that is in a way that's beyond, clearly beyond what he needed to do. I don't know if I would call them friends, but they... They are allies, maybe, or they're they're bonded by their love of this work and creativity um, and this loyalty. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's right. There's some respect there. There's for years, the fans would wonder if there was some amount of will they or won't they. And a lot of us were like, no, 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 we're not. We're not even. No, that is not what this is. No, I, I never thought that. I could see where people wondered. But yeah, that never I would have been really disappointed. 
How did you get into Buffy? I want to say it was the summer in Chicago. It started airing, I think, the summer before my second year of law school. So I was working full time. I was going to school at night. And so I had very little time for television. But I had a friend who worked at Warner Brothers. And he's also a screenwriter now. He's part of what it helped me sort through the story structure I use. And he kept saying to me, I think you would really like Buffy. And I had seen the movie and I thought it was fun, but it it didn't it didn't necessarily make me inclined to watch this, but he really knows what I like. And he and he kept saying, You should watch this. And I started watching and they had it on Monday nights at nine o'clock. And that was I would get home from my class about quarter to nine at night and I was exhausted. So I would turn it on and I just got hooked and it became my my thing that was like, okay, it's, it's Monday night. Like I got through last week. I can at least watch Buffy, except WGN with would screw with us all and preempted all the time for the Cubs. So I was always trying to keep track of when it would be on. So I, I really, I'm sure that I missed episodes in the first time around. in the first couple of years because yeah, you couldn't necessarily always find it. And then when I got the when DVDs became a thing. And I watched a season all the way through is when I was completely blown away because that's the first time I really grasped, oh, this is a this is a long story. Like, yeah, there's those one-off episodes you could pull out, but it is long-form storytelling, which was so new at the time. Yeah, I was going to say that when you brought it up when we were relating it to Mad Men and, and, and how you really do need to watch Mad Men a season at a time. I mean, certainly Buffy was the first time I really saw that level of arc. So I knew Sarah Michelle Geller from All My Children. Oh yeah, me too. Eric, right? She was Erica Kane's daughter and I never thought she was very good. I enjoyed her, but I never thought she was good. And I was more of a snob than about, I now understand that if you enjoy someone on screen, that actually means more. I was always like, well, this person's not talented or this person's not talented, but actually if, oh, if right. you like them on screen, that, that isn't nothing. And then fast forward. So now Buffy premieres and I was never like into vampires or, or stuff like that. And um, I think so. I think I watched the pilot and I was just like, OK, and I, it just didn't get me. And I always liked a good teen drama, but it didn't get it just didn't get me. Years later, it was on 75 times a week on like the, the different channels and the different times. For a while. Yes, you could find it all over. And I would watch. I remember it would come on Saturdays, like two or three of them would come on and I would and I would wa- catch one. And I said to my sister, because all we've ever done our whole lives is talk about television. And I guess she had watched it. And I said, I'm watching, I'm starting to watch Buffy. Basically what I'm doing is I'm watching until I figure out who the big bad is. And then I turn it off 10 minutes early, which is how you can watch a Star Trek. (laughs) Maybe not the new ones, but it's certainly how you can watch a, a next generation. Right. And she said, oh, no, no. The 10, the last 10 minutes is where all the character stuff happens. So the next time I watched, I watched to the end and I have no idea which one it was or what season is probably third or fourth, you know, maybe season, uh, who knows. Then I started getting hooked. So similar to like, then I had to go back. Eventually I went back and started at the beginning and that's where the arcing is as well, right? It's, it's, yes. you've got one storyline, you know, and other character stuff weaving through, but that heart, I mean, Buffy will break your heart and that's, I like a, sh- oh, yeah. I like a show that yeah. will break your heart. And that that 
ending, like what you were saying until you, I think you mentioned that when we were um, connecting on Twitter and I thought that's right. I never thought about it. But even looking at other shows, when I look at Buffy and in my podcast, I'll do a section on the falling action. So our main plot is resolved. And Buffy often has quite a long falling action section where you're tying up loose ends and subplots and seeding things for the next episode. Or like you said, those character things where a lot of other shows, even Mad Men sometimes you hit your climax, often the madman, the the sort of tying up or falling action might just be that song that they play at the end, or it's one moment. And those are key moments too, but they're usually much quicker where Buffy had so much. And I had not thought about it that way until you said that, that yeah, that is where so much of the heart of it is. In those relationships and in those, you know, one of the things I've been I've been getting from your podcast and sort of applying to Mad Men is, is you talk about the conflict a lot and using the conflict as a way to tell a story, right? As you, you know, how, how you get X. I mean, we've, Dan and I have talked a lot about how Matthew Weiner is great at not dumping exposition on you. He hates exposition Mm -hmm. and he comes up with great ways to do it. And then in listening to your podcast, I'm learning that a lot of that happens through conflict, which, which, I'm now seeing that in Mad Men as well. The guys sitting around bitching about Duck is how we learned a lot about Duck's history, just was one example, you know. Um, right. When he came in, you know, it's just people gossiping and, and being unhappy is a way you're going to, you can find out stuff without, you know, this is Duck. And da, da, da. So um, I definitely got that from listening to you. Covered Peggy, we've covered Mad Men, we've covered Buffy. We're, we're going to keep covering them both forever. This is just today we get to cover them together. Yes, Yes, which is great. (laughs) Really fun. So make sure you listen to, if you are a Buffy fan, I'm telling you, you want to check out Buffy and the Art of Story. You can follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa M. Lilly, and her website is lisalilly.com. And then she's got, again, she's got this writing as a second career.com with all kinds of like tips and this and that. I have a lot of friends out there who are writing their novels for real. As someone not writing a novel, I have not checked this stuff out, but I already know my viewing skills, my critiquing skills, my ability to look at the framing of Mad Men has already changed from listening to your podcast. And I just love Buffy and I love listening to it. So it's really fun. Oh, I'm so glad. So I thank you, Lisa. Thank you. This has been terrific. What's your quote, Dan? Wasn't that great? Wasn't Lisa great? (laughs) She's phenomenal. That was really good stuff. (laughs) Yeah, love her. So I love that scene that we referred to earlier, which was uh, Joan and Peggy kind of coming back. And it was was a great, it's a callback to like the fact that they've had these conversations before, right? A lot of shows, there'll be these conversations. Like each one's the first time they kind of hit on a subject that they've (laughs) touched on 50 times, like a soap opera or something. But this this one literally builds on the conversations that preceded. And as we said, even on the ones for Peggy with, with Bobby. That's right. So Joan refers to, oh, you never take the advice anyway. I give you, you don't listen to anything I say or whatever. But it's part of, it's another just sort of breaststroke in this relationship. And she finally says about not wanting, Peggy, I never wanted that job. You're asking me questions. You're kind of like, you went off and did your own thing. Now you're coming to me for help. And the the quote that Joan has is, you're in their country. Learn to speak the language. 
which is kind of the motto for Joan as a character, right? She's she she could she is multilingual. But I really did love how she put it there to Peggy because that was that was language Peggy could understand. That was an instruction Peggy could take something with. And we literally do see her then then start to speak the native language <laughs> at yeah. the at the at the at the nightclub. So really great turn of phrase by Joan. I, I love how she put it and, and, and more more so the context. Yeah, it's really interesting that I just put this together, which is Peggy did not ask Bobby Barrett for advice. No. And she got it. <laughs> between the eyes. And then right. and between the eyes. And then she did ask Joan for her advice. Mm-hmm. And she got the same advice. Oh yeah. This right? was right. So but I just I didn't I hadn't thought about all I thought was, wow, all this advice is coming her way. But she actually asked for it. Mm. And I think she was maybe looking for a different answer, right? She really was looking for, like, how does a woman get in with the guys in this office? And 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 Joan's like, yeah, that's not what that's not what I do. Mm. I do something else. That's right. 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 So it's just great. But, we, but we've connected Joan and Bobby before in their outlooks and the way that they sort of exist and thrive in their own way. But very different ways. Very different they're, ways. They're, yeah. But their philosophies are very similar, as we've said, and how they're imparting that to Peggy is fascinating in this kind of episodic type of format. So anyway, this is a great example of that. That's wonderful. So mine, uh, I, again, I loved I loved the creative in this episode. And um, Salvatore says, you're a Jackie or a Marilyn. A line and a curve. Nothing goes better together. I mean, that is just such a beautiful... I know a lot of art directors, and they don't often get to speak so artistically <laughs> in the in the advertising environment. Yeah. Like he really, the ad got, you know, we, we, God, we talked about this last season about who the, who the art directors were back then. And they were breaking ground and, and they were artists. And, and I'm not, you know, I don't mean to knock the people I've worked with. I know many, it's just, they don't, they don't even express themselves as like artists in that way because it's just not even, nobody cares. <laughs> it's just like, just show me it, you know, show me some concepts. So to really hear the art side of the concept and, and his, it was just beautiful. It was just poetic. That's right. And I love a line and a curve. I love that they, um, they're really good at showing that Sal's good at his job without, without it being like a real focus of things. Sal's hasn't been, you know, his work has not been central to really much of anything within the show, but the work that he does for this and ex- executing Paul Kinsey's one good idea. Then, <laughs> then, um, then he's sitting there also when Peggy and Pete are going back and forth about the Clearasil idea. Yeah, and he just he takes in what Peggy's saying and he's like, "I can make a whole thing can, out of that." Yeah, I can which work is with that. like yeah. a basically like a like a gold star from the from the art department. So, yeah, I, I, it's it's a great line and it's it it's. It's emblematic of, I think, Sal in this episode, which is super. Maiden form. It was a damn fine episode. Oh, my God. And next week is the gold violin, which I haven't seen. And I'm already, I mean, I haven't seen in years. And I'm already sort of pre-remembering 
that it is a stunning episode and I don't exactly remember why. It's great. So I can't, no, there's I can't a few, wait. There's a few things that stand out and that's, they're all good and they'll hold can't up, wait. I'm sure. So we'll talk we will about get that into then. It. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. If you're enjoying our show, please give us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts and share the show on social media. And if you're able to support us, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash they coined it. We've got some extra content there for you. We love hearing from our listeners. You can send your thoughts or questions to questions at tcimadmenpod.com or check in with us on Twitter and Instagram at tcimadmenpod. We're just at the beginning. We can't wait to discuss more Mad Men with you and continue bringing in special guests. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next episode.